Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have Sophie Barton, BS. She's a graduate student at Harvard in the Department of Evolutionary Biology. And we're going to talk about breed-specific behaviors in working dogs. So, Sophie, thanks for coming. Uh, thanks. I'm glad to be here. Yeah. Well, tell me about your, your research with dogs. Why dogs and uh, you know, what's your research about? Yeah, so um, my main research interest um, is how brains evolve adaptations to uh, learn specific behaviors and skills. And so to answer this question, I use domestic dogs as a model organism um, for studying the evolution of brain behavior relationships. And there's a couple of reasons that I study dogs. The first is because um, dogs have um, been bred to... Uh, be so different from each other and to be different breeds, they show an enormous amount of phenotypic diversity um, in appearance, behavior, and even brain anatomy. So um, that's really great um, from an evolutionary neuroscientist perspective. And furthermore, over the past 200 or so years, um, since breeds were sort of invented in the West, dogs have been selected for a variety of different um, behaviors, um, including skilled behaviors. Um, so these are things like um, herding or hunting, guarding, or um, even companionship. And so a lot of those behaviors are relevant to uh, humans because um, they involve either aggression or they involve, so involve sociality or cooperation. Um, and things like that. Um, so it's very interesting to look at dogs in that respect. Um, and also um, because uh, those skills and behaviors that dogs show, um, they ha obviously have a genetic propensity for them, um, and different breeds have different propensities for different behaviors, but also they require experience in order to fully um, show um, that behavioral phenotype um, and to do it well if it's um, a particular skill. Um, and this is somewhat analogous um, to humans. So over the course of human evolutionary history, humans have developed brain adaptations for language and tool use and social cognition and a bunch of things like that. And humans have to be um, in a social environment environment in order to acquire all of those skills. And you can't obviously do an experiment with humans by like depriving them of those abilities and seeing how that impacts the learning um, in their brain. But you can actually do that with dogs. And people do that all the time by owning dogs that used to be working dogs as pets and no longer doing those activities with them. Um, so a lot of my research involves comparing um, working dogs who are doing the function that they were bred for to non-working dogs who just are um, basically couch potatoes and companions. Sure. Yeah, that's what, that's what my kids call my dogs, the white potato, the brown potato, and the burnt <laughs> potato. Those are their colors. But yeah. And they are sometimes couch potatoes. We come home, they're all laying on the couch like a dog hotel, you know, sleeping. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you think people knew how to bring out a particular attribute in a dog? Like, how were working dogs first bred into existence? And, you, you know, what do you think? Yeah, so um, if you look further back in history before the Victorian period, um, people did still use dogs for particular um, functions. 
Um, but back then they weren't really selectively bred and people kind of selected individual dogs that showed propensities for the behavior um, that they were interested in. Um, so they might choose dogs that seemed to have a good sense of smell and that wanted to um, chase after prey or they might choose dogs that seem particularly aggressive and maybe that's a great dog for guarding your home. Um, so there were general types of dogs back then and they were, um, and sometimes people would use specific ones for um, specific um, activities. But then around the Victorian era, people began to think that maybe they could apply um, breeding practices that they use with cattle and swine and other domesticated animals um, to dogs in order to um, improve them to the point that they can um, do advanced work with them, but also so that they could show them off as kind of commodities to other people saying, look, at this is my dog. It's so well bred. It can do this behavior. It looks in this sort of way. And so people have kind of bred these skills into dogs um, and these behaviors um, just like they have bred characteristics of um, cattle and swine. So like they didn't know anything about genetics, um, but if they had a dog that was good at hunting or good at herding or something of the like, um, then they would try to find another dog that also seemed to have those abilities, breed them together. And then usually they would keep inbreeding the family and that would eventually lead to the creation of a breed and they would no longer allow those dogs to breed with other dogs. So prior to breed formation, dogs were definitely freer to um, breed with whatever dog, other dog they wanted to. But when, once breed formation happened, people began to um, restrict their breeding and try to match traits in dogs um, so that they could achieve um, a certain behavior. Um, and so actually um, all of the modern dog breeds are from a scientific perspective, quite inbred because people started to only um, breed them within certain lines and or familial lines. So that's kind of how they managed to kind of narrow in on the behaviors and the dog population that they thought were useful and then kind of exaggerate them um, in the breeds they were breeding. Yeah, now even within a breed, I'm sure that trainers still look for the ones that have, you know, that show the most heightened characteristic they're looking for. Like let's say you're training bloodhounds or something to smell and track, they probably look obviously within bloodhounds for the, the best smelling bloodhound, you know, the one that can do the best. So it ups it, the ability even more. Yes, exactly. And there's actually organizations that are devoted to this in the modern day. Um, so um, there are Labrador retrievers that are bred as service dogs. Um, so there are entire organizations whose job is to try to selectively breed individuals that are um, the best at being service dogs and assisting people so that they can help blind people and disabled people. Um, and actually, they have a remarkably high failure rate at that. So um, about half of the dogs that go through their program and receive full training um, actually don't quite cut it um, to be uh, service dogs. So it kind of varies from breed to breed. But um, with biology, you're always going to you know, have mutations, you're going to have um, dogs that just have bad experiences. There's so many different things that could go wrong that would cause the dog to maybe not live up to its um, full potential. And yeah, like the, these things are difficult to breed in dogs actually, and people have to work quite hard at it to make it work. So what are you studying? Like the variation of a certain trait or the span of it within a certain breed or across breeds, like, you know, what the total variation is? Yeah, so um, I do a couple of different things. On one end of my research um, that's purely behavioral, 
I am um, evaluating dogs in the lab and then also at home through owners submitted videos. I'm trying to characterize the general variation in dog behavior across the population. Um, and so for those studies, I um, get a lot of different purebred dogs and I also get mixed breed dogs. And then another line of work that I'm doing is doing kind of a large scale um, literature review of all of the historical documents related to dog breeding to try to characterize how dogs have been selected for certain behaviors over history. And then my core focus is my neuroimaging research. So what that involves um, is recruiting pairs of dogs um, so um, that are siblings. So one sibling will be a some sort of working dog that currently does its um, behavioral function. So like a border collie that's currently hurting as a job. And then its sibling um, from the same litter, um, preferably, that never ended up becoming a herding dog for whatever reason, maybe someone just selected it as a pet and that's just what it is now. And then I compare their brains um, to um, kind of understand exactly what the neural circuits are uh, involved in, um, let's say, herding behavior, and then um, trying to understand how those um, circuits um, change according to experience. Um, and so for that sort of work thus far, um, we've been collecting data from Border Collies, um, who are historical herders, um, German Shepherds, who started off as herding dogs, but are now um, police and military dogs, and then Labrador Retreat which are retrieving dogs for hunters. You know, what do you notice between a pet version of a dog that's supposed to be really good at something versus a, a trained version? Like, do you see, um, you know, like what kind of adaptations do you see that the dog has made because of the training? Yeah, so the research is um, still uh, very much pro, uh, in its preliminary stages because we're still um, collecting data. But what I can tell you um, is that typically... Um, the pet dogs have a different demeanor than the working dogs. Um, I don't know how to um, describe it objectively, but subjectively, the working dogs seem to be a bit more mature and focused, and usually they're much more well-trained and better behaved, whereas the pet dogs are a much more relaxed, goofy sort of dogs like the ones you'd have at home. And then actually, um, my PhD advisor, Aaron Hecht, published a study um, last year looking at neuroanatomical variation um, across a bunch of dog breeds, um, and all of the brain scans were from dogs that were pets that weren't working dogs. And she found um, remarkable variation in um, brain networks um, probably related um, to the historical function that they were bred for. Um, so even though a pet dog might not necessarily do its current function, you can still easily see traces of what it was bred for in their brains. Okay, so I mean, what do you notice in terms of the behavior? Like a scan may show you something or may not, um, but what's, you know, do you see correlation with behavior in scans, you know, neurological scans? Uh... And just what do you observe? Yeah, so um, again, the um, comparative work between the working and pet dog, pet dogs is still um, very much preliminary. But one thing that we um, have noticed is that um, these networks are present in both um, working and pet dogs, but they seem to be more developed and larger um, and dogs are actually doing the task. And then furthermore, in addition to doing this kind of um, MRI scan where we can look to see which networks um, are uh, related to that breed, um, we also give these dogs a battery of um, surveys um, and then also on some dogs perform um, behavioral tests to kind of um, evaluate what sort of um, traits those dogs show. So um, 
There are um, questions related to temperament in the surveys, um, some questions related to breed function um, in an abstract way. Um, for example, um, asking if the dog like tends to track objects moving in space. And then they're also in like the behavioral experiments, we kind of look at their response to humans, both experimenters and their own owners, and try to look at not only um, how do they respond to people, but what this what is their attachment to their owner and whether they're um, able to inhibit kind of responses, um, you know, in an experiment where we're kind of um, telling the dog not to eat a treat to see if um, they're uh, able to kind of um, control their own behavior and um, also how obedient they are. Um, and all of those things are quite relevant to working dogs, especially Border Collies, Labs, and German Shepherds, um, because in all of those dogs' jobs, um, a lot of it is contingent on them wanting to work with the owner or handler and having the ability to um, actually perceive and interpret and carry out cues that the um, handler is giving. Well, okay. I mean, so these are all general things that you're looking for, but have you been able to do any experimentation yet, uh, you know, now or in the past? And, you know, what jumps out at you? What have you observed so far? Yeah. So... Um, for the behavioral work, it's still ongoing, and it was somewhat interrupted by um, COVID. But one of the um, findings that we've noticed by analyzing the data thus far um, is not necessarily related to um, like working versus non-working dogs, but is sort of related to um, domestication. So there, what, about 70 years ago, there was this um, large-scale experiment in Russia to domesticate foxes. Um, the idea was to try to replicate dog domestication to see if selection for tameness could actually result in um, what's known as the domestication syndrome. Um, so in dogs and a bunch of other domesticated animals, you see floppy ears, curly tails, goofy um, behavior, um, behave like the animal wanting to approach humans, things like that. Um, and they found that after a couple of generations, um, they were able to breed foxes that show these characteristics. And it turns out that those foxes um, today um, practically fall over themselves with excitement when um, a human approaches a cage that they're in. Um, they really want to interact with strange humans. Um, so we part of our um, battery of behavioral tests was investigating that in dogs um, because scientists kind of uh, kind of uh, thought that, oh, of course, dogs are pretty tame. Dogs would behave in the same sort of way, but no one had ever tested it before. Um, so we did that. And it turns out that dogs weren't super happy-go-lucky when they encountered a stranger after being left alone in a cage. In fact, dogs were actually quite um, disturbed by the paradigm because it involves uh, an experimenter walking to the room silently, showing no emotions on their face, just having a neutral expression, and then um, blankly looking at the dog um, as they they approach the cage, they interact with the dog in a friendly manner when they open the cage, and then they return to that blank stare afterwards. Um, and if this were foxes, what you'd see is the foxes just whining, rolling over, just super excited, just hoping that the human will interact with them. But what we found with dogs is that they actually kind of stood there, um, were afraid to move. Um, some of them showed strength behaviors, like they were shaking. And there were some dogs that were um, too aggressive, um, even for the person to reach in and pet them. Um, and interestingly, um, two of the dogs um, that did that in the experiment um, were Labrador retrievers. So it might be some sort of um, breed thing, although we don't really have the numbers um, yet to confirm that. So it turns out that um, dogs seem to be uh, perhaps more um, aware of social cues than foxes, perhaps because of their longer domestication um, period with humans. 
and maybe a neutral um, face on a stranger is intimidating to a dog um, because they can read social cues better than perhaps a fox, which uh, just wants to interact with any human it sees. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Well, I've noticed in terms of um, sounds, you know, my dogs, I don't know, there's one if you like, you know, tickle them in a certain way, they don't like it. And the dog goes, Arr. and if I do that, and I pet the dog, the dog, you know, hears it and responds and goes, ah, and then I do that too. And the dog gets like upset to the point where it's, it says, ah, and it jumps off the couch and runs away, you know? And I, I used to have another dog where, you know, when he would get annoyed, he would make a certain sound. So sometimes I would pet him and make that sound just to like to tease him and he would get him really annoyed quick. <laughs> so it, it seems like also sounds they respond to too. And they're not just words or commands, but I don't know. They, they don't seem like they like it when you emulate them you tease them you know they don't appreciate that no i yeah i've um i've done similar things with my own dog um one thing that i've noticed is when she licks my face um i've tried licking her back um and she mm-hmm. absolutely can't stand that um so i think dogs also um in some way expect us to behave differently um than their own species um and so when humans start acting dog like i think it's maybe a bit confusing and bizarre to them yeah, they, they, they do. Like, uh, you know, it's silly. I, I said to my dog, you know, how can we never pet me? And I, you know, I know they don't understand. But yeah. I took the dog's paw and tried to pet me and they don't like it. And it's just funny that you're, you're right. They don't, they do things their way. They don't want you to do things their way. You know, that, that's for them. Mm-hmm. And it's funny they recognize that. I guess we don't, you know, we don't do it in the way they like, but. Well, yeah. And actually, there's a lot of science showing that um, dogs perceive other dogs versus humans very differently. So in general, dogs um, actually much prefer humans than they prefer dogs, um, which is somewhat counterintuitive. Um, Yeah, because dogs are, of course, their own species. But dogs are actually kind of um, filling a niche in that they... Uh, so in um, wolf packs, uh, usually wolf packs are families and and, uh, there's not too much aggression and the um, puppies um, kind of behave towards adults like dogs behave towards humans. And so over the domestication period, dogs became more juvenile-like in their behavior. So more like a juvenile wolf rather than an adult wolf. And so dogs in our own families kind of function um, as a child. Um, So these dogs kind of see us um, perhaps as their parents because that's um, the niche that they um, are kind of uh, fitting into since they are more juvenile um, and juvenilistic in behavior. So they're very interested in humans and less so in other dogs. And even though dogs are generally less aggressive than wolves on, in a lot of different ways, they're actually more aggressive to other dogs within their own um, groups or their own packs or in their own families than wolves are. So it seems like... Um, in some ways, dogs have kind of lost a little bit of their ability um, to communicate with other dogs. Um, and there's a lot of variation in uh, dog-related um, behavior to other dogs, because, just because um, they seem to have this kind of stunted social development um, with respect to their own species. Yeah, I mean, oh, well, I didn't even ask you this. Of the working breeds that you're, you're looking at, what particular traits are you wanting to study? Is it uh, like herding behavior or is it uh, relations with people and understanding commands? Like what are the features? Yeah, so I'm um, interested in um, the general behaviors that um, that they were explicitly selected for, such as the ability to herd or retrieve or things like that. But I'm also interested in um, kind of the communication side of things um, because 
and all of the breeds that I mentioned that I'm studying for the MRI, the Border Collie, the Labrador Retriever, um, and the German Shepherd, all of those dogs um, and their historical jobs had to work very closely with humans, and they had to respond to human cues um, very well. And so you would expect in dogs like that, that there would be changes related to social behavior in the brain, especially as compared to some other dogs um, whose historical jobs were much more independent. So hounds like sight hounds and scent hounds tended to just kind of be let loose and then the handler would follow them until they encountered a prey item or killed a prey item. Um, so it's a very much uh, a different behavior um, than that you see in um, kind of what we call um, cooperative working breeds um, who are responding to human cues. Um, and especially in Border Collies, this would be very interesting because uh, herding behavior is controlled by the handlers like um, cues and that are quite complex. So um, some of the commands tell the dog to move left or right and left or right is actually a difficult concept for children to master, let alone dogs. Um, so they respond to that in addition to a bunch of other commands like to wait and to like go circle a sheep that's maybe um, gone away from the flock and things like that. And not only can they respond to verbal commands very well, um, they can also respond to whistle commands. So um, in Scotland, where the landscape is much larger, um, shouting commands at a dog might not work because your voice might not carry far enough. Um, so these dogs are additionally trained to listen to these um, special types of whistles um, that vary in pitch. And um, the variation in pitch tells the dog um, what exactly they should be doing. So presumably, you should be able to see some um, some neural adaptations in their brains for responding to that kind of thing. And interestingly, there have been some studies of dogs' understanding of um, words um, in relation to finding toys. So there are a couple of border collies where their owners train them on like hundreds of different um, types of toys. Um, such that if you tell the dog, go get so-and-so toy, the dog will go into the other room, pick up that exact toy and bring it back to you. And That's cool. Yeah. And even if um, there's maybe an additional toy there that the dog's never seen before and the owner uses a new command, um, the dog can infer um, that the owner meant this new toy that it doesn't yet know a command for. It will choose that toy and then later when tested again, um, has that understanding that that toy relates to that word after only encountering it once. So you see That's this capability cool. in Border Collies. Yeah. What about... Um I, you know, it's embarrassed. I'm guilty of it, but like, baby, talk to your dogs. You go like, you, 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 that kind of thing. What are they? I don't know if you do that, but I do. It that, seems yeah. like a lot of people do that. What do you do? You, what do you think the dog thinks? Like, they're like, oh my god, or do they like it? Actually, there's been some research showing that dogs respond far better to humans when they speak in baby talk as opposed to when they speak to them in like a normal voice. Um, so it's crazy. It seems like um, people have kind of learned to kind of use this behavior they use with young infants um, with dogs because it seems to have a similar effect on them. And usually like if I want to get my dog really um, excited or motivated to do something, I'm especially likely to use this sort of um, baby talk um, because it gets her interest and it makes her focus on me. Um, and so dogs might also be used Using it as kind of a cue for when they should be listening to human speech because dogs definitely hear humans talk all the time but a lot of the time it's not directed towards the dog it's directed towards other people or other situations but um, at least personally I think that perhaps um, using baby talk kind of cues the dog into okay I should be paying attention the human is speaking to me um, right now but yeah it's really interesting that dogs um, uh, actually respond better to it yeah like with food you know Sometimes we need to use food to get them to come 
or to go somewhere to, you know, they run outside. So when we give them food, I go, Oh, look at this. And you know, it's not baby talk, but when I do that, I can get them to come much quicker because if I have something upstairs and I want them to, you know, I go, Oh, look, you know, and try to, they, they know that they think it's food. It may or may not be, but they come fast, you know? So I guess it's just like an auditory cue that's different from baby talk, but it works. Yeah. Yeah. So um, like there's also research showing that um, dogs are not only sensitive um, to kind of the semantic meaning of words or like they can recognize words, um, but they're also very sensitive to kind of the non-semantic, more like emotional um, cues and words. So they're unsensitive to like the pitch and the intonation and things like that. So maybe even just um, changing from your regular voice to a different kind of voice might cue the dog in to paying attention to you because it's something novel to them. Um, and they're able to perceive that uh, there's a difference in your voice and that might relate to something interesting um, in their environment. What about dogs that are pets of like Chinese people or people that speak tonal languages? I wonder if anyone's ever, ever looked at that because they would have to understand the tones too. Yeah, that's actually super fascinating. I don't think there's any work on that. Um, there is some work showing that dogs can understand the same um, phonemes or specific sounds and words, um, even um, if people use different accents. So if people with different accents say the same command, um, the dog's still able to understand what the person wants. So if they're under, able to understand phonemes, I'd be very interested in knowing if they could also um, understand um, tone. Yeah, that's super interesting. Also, so it's been observed people with different accents can say like, come here, but it sounds very different, but the dog still can understand. Yeah, yeah, they've done, um, yeah, in, in laboratory experiments with this, they've also had a person with, um, you know, like just one person with one accent, uh, say a command um, that the dog has learned and has demonstrated to know, um, but they might, they might vary like one phoneme in it. So instead of saying sit, they might say Sid. And if they say Sid, the dog doesn't respond. But if they say sit, then all of a sudden the dog um, responds to the command, um, which is uh, super fascinating to me because it's crazy that uh, dogs are able to uh, do these sorts of behaviors when um, non-human primates that are language trained um, struggle to do. I know chimps, you know, some of them they've trained on sign language. Can dogs understand sign language? Um, yeah, so there are people who have um, trained dogs to understand complex um, cues with hands. And there are also people with sign language that only interact with their animals, uh, of course, through sign language. And the dogs respond just fine. So dogs are actually very interested in human hands. Um, human hands are especially salient to them. So it's not that difficult for a dog to respond to hand commands. Um, it's actually possibly a bit harder for dogs to respond to um, voice commands. Um, so that's why a lot of people use both voice and hand commands during training. So there are two different um, ways the dog can learn. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I remember um, one of our dogs, we would say sit, but we'd kind of like open our palm and raise our hand with the fingertips facing them. And then the combination worked better than just saying sit, sit, sit over again. Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I definitely think that's because for um, whatever reason, dogs are, are very interested in hands. And I think that's maybe because um, human hands perform actions like petting or feeding or things like that. Um, and also pointing in dogs have an innate propensity to follow human points. So a lot of times dogs are kind of looking to your hands um, for information about what you want, which is super interesting. What have you seen so far in your research that just you know, really surprises you? Maybe, you know, what are some like some big questions you have that you're hoping to answer in the near term? Yeah, so let's see. There 
Um, so in our battery of um, kind of behavioral tests that we do in the lab, one of the things that's really interesting to me is, um, of, like I mentioned earlier, um, like the response of dogs to strangers um, and how um, they kind of don't follow exactly the domesticated phenotype. Another thing um, that we do um, is um, study emotional contagion or empathy in dogs. Um, and kind of what that involves is um, the experimenter gets on the floor and puts their hand down um, and they pretend to be hammering something into the ground with a rubber mallet. Um, so they do it um, in a specific way and then pretend to accidentally hit their thumb um, and then cry out in pain in a specific way um, that we practice beforehand. So it's standardized. Um, and we look to see... Um, if the dogs um, seem to be responding to that. And it turns out that there's a lot of variation in whether dogs um, do respond to the pain of a stranger or don't respond to the pain of a stranger. So um, in the future, it'd be um, interesting to kind of delve uh, deeper into that. Another thing um, that we've been doing is uh, looking to see if dogs can respond to the commands of a stranger and inhibit their um, behavior. So um, what that involves is a person putting a treat um, between their feet um, and they first train the dog, no, you're not allowed to have this treat. Um, and then they um, do different things that make it increasingly harder for the dog to resist the treat. Um, so what we're trying to get at is whether uh, at what point does the dog kind of pick up on cues that the human might not be fully paying attention to the treat and therefore it might be a good opportunity to take it. So at first the person just sits there looking at the dog, then later they're looking at a magazine, later their eyes are closed, later they're flipped um, away facing the other direction in the chair. Um, at one point they even leave the room briefly. And it turns out that there's a huge variation in this. And somehow some dogs are able to resist the entire time, even if they've never had um, training, like they've never learned the command, leave it. Um, and that seems to be related to a concept called inhibitory control um, or just self-control. And interestingly, a lot of neuroscience research has shown that across animal species, as brains get larger, self-control tends to increase. And in dogs, there's a lot of variation in body size. And so smaller dogs um, have smaller brains, of course, than larger dogs. Um, so it would also be interesting to know if the dogs who perform better on those sorts of tasks um, tend to have um, larger brains or something about their brains, like maybe proportionally larger cortices as um, compared to subcortex. Well, is it the size of the brain or is it the density of a certain uh, cell type in the brain? Yes. Network connections. Uh, so um, all of the current research just finds that it's absolute size of the brain that's relating to this. Um, no one's really delved into the neuronal count, but uh, it's possible that that might also play a role um, in this um, behavior. But it seems like absolute size and is the thing. And um, the reason for that might be as brains get larger, the cortex or the part of the brain that's involved in higher order um, volitional uh, cognitive functions tends to get larger proportionally to the subcortex, which is involved in more automatic um, responses um, and it becomes smaller. And so in a larger dog, they'll have proportionally a larger cortex um, as compared to a smaller dog, um, which doesn't benefit from that increased brain size. And so the cortex is proportionally larger um, than it would be in a larger dog. So there's an idea out there that perhaps it's that ratio and the cortex's ability to inhibit or not inhibit the subcortex um, that allows an animal to inhibit its behavior or not. Um, and actually, it's, this also kind of ties into reactive aggression. 
And it turns out that just toy dogs or smaller dogs tend to have much more reactive aggression than larger dogs. And this might be related to their brain size and the fact that their subcortex is pretty large. Yeah, I would think there's a density variation in the different cells that comprise the brain, but it only goes so far. So size would have to come into role at some point. Like a, mm-hmm. you know, a chihuahua's brain versus like a mastiff's brain. How much of a size difference is there? Yeah, yeah, and also there have been like very, very preliminary studies where they've just had like two dogs, like a golden retriever um, and a, a small mixed breed dog, um, and counted the neurons. And basically, the larger dog had double the neurons um, of the smaller dog, and that's probably po- probably partially related to um, the size of the brain, and it also might have something to do with breed. Um, but it's impossible to say given that only two dogs were involved in the particular study I'm thinking of. But yeah, definitely some cell density could um, play a role in this. Well, very good. So what's the best way for people to find out more about your, your research? Yeah, so uh, my research projects are all on a website called caninebrains.org with canine um, spelled out as the word. And then similarly, there we have um, an Instagram account that is canine underscore brains. Um, and then also um, I have a Twitter account, which is just my name, Sophie underscore A underscore Barton, where um, I will post about my research from time to time. Okay, very good. Well, Sophie, thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thanks. I enjoyed being here. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.